Well, hi, everybody. I am Donnie Abbott. Some of you may not know me, um, but I'm the children's pastor here at Timberline. And uh, about every other month or so, Brent uh, invites me to come on Wednesday night and share uh, in this venue. So it's a privilege to do that. Um, just a little bit about me, just so you kind of know who's, who's speaking at you. I always want to know when, when someone is new. <clears throat> um, I've been married to my wife, Shauna, for uh, we just celebrated 20 years this past January. And uh, thank you. And uh, <clears throat> to celebrate that, we traveled to New York City. And she had never been. I've been a couple of times, but it was it was a joyous four-day trip without children, which was probably the best part of it. <laughs> you almost hate saying that, right? But no, it was so much fun, and we did all the, all the touristy things, but we had a great time. So I've been married 20 years. I have three kids, three boys. Uh, Jack is 20, or Jack is 18. Um, Owen is 12. And then Wyatt is 10. And we just love our boys uh, tremendously. I've been in ministry for about 25 years or so. And uh, got my start um, just simply volunteering in a local church's children's ministry. And from there, it just kind of grew into a part-time gig and then full-time and then uh, pastoral work. I did my undergrad at Biola University. Any, any Biola people? No Biola people? Okay. Uh, Biola is a uh, Christian school in Southern California. That's where I'm from. I'm from Anaheim. And then I went to seminary up at Multnomah University. Any Multnomah people? In Portland, Oregon. And that was a great experience also. So that's kind of just a little bit about me, just so you know who's speaking at you tonight. And it's a privilege to be here. Um, oh, just a few quick things before I get into the message is a reminder that next Wednesday night, there is no service, okay? So next Wednesday night, no service, because we will celebrate um, Good Friday together. So next Friday, not this Friday, but the Friday after. So that's why we're canceling Wednesday night service, okay? And please come. A Good Friday service begins at 6.30. It's for the whole family, and it will take place in the main auditorium, okay? And then we do have um, child care up to from birth to five years of age. But uh, kids older than that, they'll go into service with you, all right? Well, 10 Lies About God. Have you guys enjoyed this, this series, 10 Lies About God? I've I found it to be a very interesting series. Um, over the past few weeks, we've looked at <clears throat> the lies of uh, God is bigger than any one religion. <clears throat> we looked at the lie that God promotes sexism. Uh, God is more tolerant than he used to be. Thank God for that, Right? Uh, and that we should never express our anger towards God. Um, the, other, the other lie that I thought was interesting, God doesn't want me to act until I know his will. That is a very interesting one, isn't it? Well, Brent, Brent does a great job putting these series together. And tonight we will look at the lie 
that I disappoint God. I disappoint God. Several years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a widely, hugely popular book called Disappointed with God. And if I'm honest with you tonight, I'm constantly disappointed with God because he never does what I think he should do. Anybody else like that? Yeah? It's like, come on, God, don't you see this? You know, I see it so clearly, but you obviously don't. So I get disappointed with God. And if you've never read that book, Disappointment with God, I encourage you to put that on your must-read list for 2018. At times, we all get disappointed with God. But the question tonight is, does God get disappointed with us? Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like God is disappointed in me a lot. I feel like I can never quite get things right. If you're like me, there is one or perhaps several sins that you just can't quite overcome. There are certain behaviors that you just cannot correct. You wish that you could be more patient with your spouse, right? More patient with your children. And you wonder if God is happy with what you've made out of your life so far. If you're like me, you feel like you need to work harder and harder to please God so as not to disappoint him. Anybody else feel like that? Because I sure do. You know, just for the fun of it, about a week and a half ago, I went around to our church staff and I asked them the question, do you ever feel that you disappoint God? And only one said, no, I don't. I don't feel like I disappoint God. Now, to be fair, I only question, asked that question of about a dozen people, so kind of a small sampling. But they were all church staff, and these were all Christians, people who have been followers of Jesus anywhere from just a few years to over 50 years. And a couple of them felt that they disappoint God because of bad teaching that they experienced when they were younger. Pastors, teachers would try to scare the hell out of them, sort of scare them into heaven. I'm sure that many of you have had that kind of experience, right? Others said that they feel they disappoint God because they just don't measure up. No matter how hard they try, they just don't measure up to what they think God expects of them. One, one of these people talked about the influence of parents. And this is big because oftentimes we will project onto God the things that we experience with our parents, either good or bad. And because of that, some experts say that a parent should never tell their children that they are disappointed in them because that is such a strong statement. If a child hears that, they might think, well, if my dad is disappointed in me, then God must be disappointed in me also. A couple other staff they said that God is disappointed in them because they don't always do what God wants them to do. Like keeping up with the disciplines of the Christian faith, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, etc. 
A couple of them also mention the word shame. And this one really kind of piqued my interest. I thought it was interesting that they mentioned shame because shame is so powerful, isn't it? Shame is a close cousin of disappointment. If someone is disappointed in you, then you will probably also experience to some degree guilt and shame that go along with that. And who wants any of that, right? Whenever I teach on a topic, I always go to my favorite um, Bible study tool, blueletterbible.org. And I, I had that put in the bulletin tonight for your reference. It's a great study tool. And um, it has dictionaries and commentaries and other tools. It's just a great resource. I think you'll really like it. It has a nice feature in there where you can type, you can type in a word and it will tell you how many times that particular word appears in Scripture. Check, check. All right, that'll have to do. So you can, uh, there's a search bar in this, uh, in this, at this site, and you can type in any word that you want, and um, what will come up is how many times that word appears throughout Scripture. And so just for the heck of it, I typed in the word disappoint. And I'm using the NIV translation. Guess how many times the word disappoint appears in Scripture? Zero. Zero. And I'm sitting there thinking, that can't be right. So my other favorite translation is a NASB, the New American Standard. So I typed it in using that. Guess how many times disappoint came up? Once. One time. And this was it. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It says this. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. So nowhere in Scripture does it say that God is ever disappointed in us. You see, the Father heart of God is one that doesn't experience disappointment with you. The Father heart of God doesn't cause you to feel shame. So I'm here tonight to tell you and to remind me that our disappointing God is a lie. So the first point that I want you to write down in your handout is I am not a disappointment to God. I am not a disappointment to God. And I feel like, I feel like we need to camp here for just a minute because this is a really important statement to make. For many people, this can be a game changer. And I just don't want us to gloss over this moment. Because I'm sure some folks here have gone your whole life thinking that you're a failure. That you don't measure up. That you are a disappointment to God. In fact, some of you may not even be able to write 
the words down. I am not a disappointment to God because you don't actually believe it. Many of you have the idea in your head that God is this cosmic ogre sitting up there in the sky just shaking his head in disgust whenever he thinks of you. And I want you to know tonight that is a lie. That is a skewed view of God. And Satan loves it when we don't have a clear view of who God is. God has nothing but love for you. I'll say that again. God has nothing but love for you. And it doesn't mean that God isn't saddened by our poor choices, by our sins. He doesn't affirm everything that we do. Not Like I said earlier, I have three kids, and as you can imagine, three boys, they do some of the craziest things you've ever seen. I mean, just when I think I've seen everything, one of them will go do something like, I didn't see that one coming. That's crazy. I don't affirm everything that my kids do. I'm saddened when they go off and do stupid things. And when they start doing crazy things, I call them on it and I correct them. Why? Because I love them. And it's the same with God. So I want us to just take a minute to just kind of dwell on this statement. I am not a disappointment with God. God, we do bask in this statement, God, that you are not disappointed in us. There's some here tonight that don't necessarily believe that. But I pray, Father, that you would reveal your real heart to them, that you absolutely love them, and that you are not disappointed in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's another thing for you to jot down. God is easily pleased with you, but is never satisfied. God is easily pleased with you, but is never satisfied. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. For those of you who have had children, think back to when your, your child was just taking his or her first steps. I remember our first child, Jack, when he was just a little guy, you know, holding himself up by tables and chairs, and then finally he's ready to let go and taking those first wobbly steps. And his mom and I, we were so unbelievably happy. You remember that, right? With the first steps, and Sean and I, we would sit down on the floor with, across from one another, and literally we'd just pass Jack back and forth, just passing him to one another, watching him take his first steps. We were thrilled with what we were witnessing, but we weren't satisfied because we knew that Jack would go on to do greater things like walking unassisted and running and riding a bike and all those things. 
You are thrilled when your child reaches each of their, those milestones, but you're not satisfied, and it's the same way with God. God is pleased with us when we are fulfilling his will, but he's not satisfied. He has greater things in store for us, including when we reach glory in heaven. So here's another thing to write down. God isn't shocked by anything. God isn't shocked by anything. God has seen it all. He is all-knowing. And because of that, he never says, man, I didn't see that coming like I do with my kids. God is never taken aback by anything that we do. God never has to come up with a plan B like you and I do. When somebody messes up, we have to go, okay, how are we going to rectify this? What's the plan B here? That's not God. God doesn't have that. He's not shocked by anything. He knows that although we are the peak of his creation, that we are fallible, sinful creatures. He knows what we are made of, and in spite of that, he still pursues us. And there's no greater example of this, in my opinion, in all of Scripture than in the life of Peter. On the last night of Jesus' life, Jesus gathers his closest buddies together for an intimate dinner. And we read that Jesus said to his disciples, During this very night... All of you will reject me. As the scriptures say, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised to life, I will go to Galilee ahead of you. Peter spoke up. Even if all the others reject you, I never will. See, Peter's feeling pretty good about himself, isn't he? Pretty confident, wouldn't you agree? Jesus goes on to tell Peter what's going to happen next. Jesus replied, I promise you that before a rooster crows tonight, you will say three times that you don't know me. But Peter, again, he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never say I don't know you. And all the others said the same thing. A short time later, Jesus' words came true. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again, this time with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Of Jesus' 12 disciples, Peter was one of the big three. Peter, James, and John. The disciples who were the closest to Jesus. Peter was big. He was bold. He was brash. He was borderline arrogant. Confident in who he was as a person. Remember, Peter is the one who stepped out of the boat when Jesus said, come to me. And Peter walked on water. Peter is the one who, when Jesus told his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem to die, Peter took Jesus aside and in his boldness corrected Jesus and said, never, Lord, shall this ever happen to you. Peter's also the one who, when the mob came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter is the one who tells Jesus that even though everyone else will desert him, he never will. And now Peter, intimidated by some servant girls, is left all alone. A tragic figure, weeping, because he sees his failings as a person. He sees his failings as a friend, his failings as a follower of Jesus. Peter recognizes that Jesus saw right through his blustery, confident persona and saw Peter and knew Peter better than Peter knows himself. What Peter is feeling is disappointment with himself. See, he not only let Jesus down, but embarrassingly and publicly, he let himself down. In short, Peter came face to face with his own inadequacy. And I think that it's our feelings of inadequacy that oftentimes lead us to feel that we are a disappointment to God. Several years ago, Dos Equis Beer ran a hugely successful marketing campaign where they introduced, you guys remember, the most interesting man in the world. There he is. Uh, this is probably my all-time favorite commercials is this guy, right? I mean, if the most interesting man in the world suffers from anything, feelings of inadequacy are not among them. He can speak French and Russian. When he goes swimming in the ocean, dolphins appear, right? His blood smells like cologne. He doesn't cry when he dices onions, and he can walk a chihuahua and still look masculine, right? I mean, this is the guy who can do it all. However, for Donnie Abbott, and I suspect that for many of us here this evening, it's a little bit different story. See, this lie of believing that we disappoint God really stems from our feeling inadequate. And feelings of inadequacy happen for a number of reasons. We compare ourselves to others. That happens with me a lot. 
See, I personally tend to feel inadequate as I look around and I begin to think, why can't I do that? Why can't I have that? Why can't I be taller, better looking, have more money? And on and on my thoughts go. And because I don't live into a lot of those things, I'm certainly good looking, but if I don't live into those other things, then I feel like God is disappointed in me. So comparing ourselves to others can cause us to feel inadequate. Being put down by influential people in our lives can also cause us to feel inadequate. And for many of us, this goes back to our fathers. Perhaps you were some, someone that never quite lived up to your father's expectations. And you feel inadequate. If you're married, your spouse can cause you to feel inadequate. Maybe you feel inadequate when it comes to things of God. You might be thinking, if God only knew the things that I've done, he would never want anything to do with me. I'm so imperfect. I'm so far from being godly. Maybe you've tried this Christian thing and it's just not quite up your alley. You don't really like going to church. You can't find your way around the Bible. You don't know how to pray. You feel inadequate. And therefore, God is disappointed in you. And there are many more areas that I can mention, but I, what I want us to, to remind all of us this evening is that God has created each of us for a purpose. Each of us have a purpose here on life. And God has you exactly where he wants you, as imperfect as you and I are, as inadequate as you might feel, God has a plan for you. Now, our typical response to inadequacy and disappointment is to work harder, to go to church more, to read our Bible more, to volunteer more, to tithe more. We do these kinds of things and others as a way of thinking that these things will help us feel better about ourselves and get us back into a right relationship with God so that he's not disappointed with us. The problem with this approach, as you know, is that we fail. We fail. The other problem with this is that you and I can never do enough to get back into a right relationship with God. The truth is that our feeling that God is disappointed with us, our feeling of inadequacy is really an identity issue. So another point for you to write down, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. See, you and I have a choice every day to gauge our value and worth based on the thoughts, words, actions of others, or we can choose to believe what God says about us. So what does God say about us? Let me first remind you that God's word is a story. 
a story that depicts how much he loves you. In the story, God is the pursuer of man, and God goes to great lengths to find his lost children. Remember, in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, they went into hiding, and God went out walking one morning in the garden, and he pursued them and asked them what I think is the most haunting question in all of Scripture. He asked them, where are you? God wasn't asking that question for himself. He knew where they were physically. He asked that question of them so they could see where they were in their relationship with God. See, where are you is a question asked by someone who is pursuing. God is constantly pursuing lost people. He offers forgiveness for our waywardness. He does miracles on our behalf. He's even given a piece of himself and sacrificed his son. He does the types of things that we would do to pursue our own wayward children. You and I would do anything to get a wayward child back, and some of you have. So in the story of God, what does that say about you? What does that say about me? Why would God go to such great lengths to win us back? It's because you and I have inherent value and worth to God. He pursues you. He pursues me because he desperately loves us. God is not disappointed in you. Brennan Manning, he wrote a book some years ago called The Ragamuffin Gospel, another book to put on your must-read list. In it, he says about God that he is not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. He is the only God that man has ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners. But the Father of Jesus loves all, no matter what they do. But of course, this is almost too incredible for us to accept. That sounds too good to believe, doesn't it? It's hard to believe that God would pursue me. That God would pursue you. It's hard to believe that because so many of us give up on one another so easily. So many of us have been given up on so easily. So it's hard to believe that this great God is pursuing me with a never-ending love. He wouldn't pursue you if he felt you weren't worth it. If he was disappointed in you. Our identity is not found in what others think of us or what we can do or how much money we have or any other external factor. 
our value and worth and adequacy comes in the simple fact that you and I are children of the Most High God. Amen to that. 2 Corinthians 3.5 reads, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from who? From God. What if I told you this evening that any feeling of inadequacy that you might be having might actually be a good thing? That your areas of weakness are places where God can truly shine in your life. That's good news, right? One of my all-time favorite pastors, Chuck Swindoll, he says that our inadequacy forces us to rely fully on God for our power and strength. God longs to meet us at the place where we have reached the end of our abilities when we have exhausted our own strength and have nothing left, that's where he can do his best work in your weakness. He doesn't use super strong, self-assertive, self-centered people. He uses the weak, the trembling, the inadequate, and the ill-equipped. And as we read the scriptures, they show us clearly that God does his best work through people he could have easily been disappointed in. People who were inadequate. And you've probably heard this list before, but I'm going to read it again. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah was a streaker. Jonah disobeyed God. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Zacchaeus was too small and Lazarus was too dead. If you read your Bible, you know that God did some pretty amazing things to these pretty, through these pretty ordinary people. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty good company to be in, right? God was not disappointed in those people, and he's not disappointed in you. So back to our friend Peter. After his denial of Jesus... Peter went back to doing the only thing that he knew how to do. And that was fish. Peter goes back to fishing. And one morning after being out on an all-nighter and not catching any fish, Peter and his buddies, they row up to the shore and guess who's waiting for them? Jesus. And Jesus is showing up not just to cook Peter a breakfast, but instead to invite Peter back into a right relationship with him. To tell Peter and to show Peter that he is not disappointed in him. And to remind him 
that Jesus has big plans for his life. It reads in John 21, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. God in pursuit over breakfast. Asking a variant of the question that was asked of Adam in the garden. Jesus wanted to know the condition of Peter's heart and where he was at in his relationship with God. It's interesting that after the resurrection, Peter was one of the first people that Jesus showed himself to. We don't know that what took place in that initial conversation, but we do know that in this situation, this meal at breakfast, that Jesus wanted to publicly acknowledge Peter and extend grace and mercy to him. And it shouldn't be lost to any of us that three times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. Why would Jesus ask Peter three times if he loves him? As a way of redeeming the three times that Peter denied knowing Jesus. It was also important for Jesus to restore Peter in the presence of others because Peter had denied Jesus in the presence of others. If there was anyone that Jesus could have been disappointed in, it would have been Peter. But it was important for Peter to hear that Jesus was not disappointed in him, but instead had great things planned for Peter. See, Jesus knew that Peter was the rock upon which the church would be built upon. It doesn't sound like a disappointed God to me. Why would God do all of this? Because God is a God of second chances. See, the chance to redeem ourselves and to be redeemed by God always comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, you and I can never do enough to get back into a right relationship with God. We can't do enough. We have to rely on the goodness and grace of God. And grace is something that, as we see every day, is in short supply in our world, isn't it? Man, you mess up today, you're going to pay for it. But grace in God's economy 
is completely different. See, God knows that you and I are just a bunch of Peters walking around. God sees through our outward appearances and knows that we are all just frail human beings desperately in need of God's grace, which is getting what we don't deserve. Many of you might remember in 2000, the rock band U2, they recorded a song called Grace. And it was the last song on their album that year. And some of the lyrics read, what once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace finds beauty in everything. Grace finds goodness in everything. God finds grace, goodness, and beauty in you. So I don't want you to believe for a minute the lie that God is disappointed in you. <laughs> 